Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 2.17, Peace and the Legacy of King Philip's War. Last week, we reached the functional end of fighting in New England. This week, we are going to take the story of King Philip's War further to its eventual peace agreement in 1678. This week, our primary focus is going to be on looking at two major topics. First, I want to examine the reasons why the English won the war and the Indians lost. Beyond the battles, looking at the underlying changes is going to tell us a lot about the state of affairs in New England at the time of the war, and is going to be helpful both when we look at the eventual peace settlement, as well as the long-term political ramifications that the war is going to have on New England, both internally and how it will be perceived back in London. Second, we are going to look at the end of the conflict itself and how that peace came about. We have already talked at length about the fact that Philip did not really have that strong of a system of alliances. Yes, there were tribes that chose to fight with him, and he did have some nominal degree of control. However, largely it was events outside of the control of Philip that were pushing the day. An example of this would have been the Narragansett under Canachet. The Narragansett were never friends with the Wampanoag, and certainly were not going to become subservient to them in any situation. This means that, though the colonists had disagreements, they were all fighting a single enemy that they could focus on. Philip had to deal not only with the English threat, but was also forced to address problems from his more traditional rivals. There is no better example of this than the events that took place in February of 1676. Philip had spent the last several months riding out the winter and preparing fresh for a new spring campaign. With New England being a dangerous place to make camp, Philip and his warriors pulled back to upstate New York, just north of Albany, where he decided to settle down for the winter. The plan for Philip was to recuperate from the successful 1675 campaign season by using his leverage to get more weapons and men to fight with him. By all accounts, all seemed to be going well for Philip on both fronts. Not only had he gathered more weapons, but had apparently amassed an army of 2,100 men to start what he had hoped would be a strong spring campaign. Unfortunately for Philip, his success over that winter did not exactly go unnoticed by the colonial officials in New York. If you'll recall from episodes 2.5 and 2.6, the royal governor at the time was Edmund Andros. Andros was, understandably, concerned about the developing situation. Andros had previously been right on the outside of this conflict during the early attempts by Rhode Island to negotiate a peace. Andros was seen by New England in general as somebody who could well represent their needs at a potential peace conference. This conference would ultimately never take place, however, as the situation in Rhode Island became too tenuous and the colony was drawn into the war. However, knowing that the English were going to be looking at him to try to broker a deal in the early peace talks, it follows that Andros probably continued to closely follow developments in New England. For Andros, there was a two-fold need to keep close tabs on the conflict. The first is obvious. Andros is in New York, and that is not that far away from New England. Should the conflict grow, there was real concern that New York could end up becoming a front in the war. Well, these concerns were primarily occurring in 1675, a year later in 1676, these fears are going to become a bit more justified. Down in Virginia, Bacon's Rebellion would spill from its boundaries of Virginia and pull Maryland into the conflict. Again, this is a year in the future, so Andros would not have been able to fall back on his knowledge. 
but it does go to show that his fears aren't exactly baseless either. The second thing for Andros to consider is the very real possibility that he was going to eventually have to get involved in the war again. Should King Philip's war get worse, would London order him to march into New England to help quell the uprising? Certainly, at some point, it was possible that Andros was going to have to send men to fight in the war. Beyond that, however, for Andros personally, it wasn't at all out of the question that he would, at some point, be called on to negotiate a peace. We just discussed the fact that he was tabbed for just such a job in June of 1675. It follows that at some point, the English might call on his services again to help bring an end to the hostilities. And as we are going to see later on today, Andros ultimately would be the man to work out that peace in 1678. Andros did not just sit idly by during the war either. During July of 1675, with New England embroiled in the war, Andros got some visions of heading in and seizing a portion of Connecticut, or even making a move to bring all of New England into line with royal prerogative. Andros was, as we have discussed, as loyal as one could be to the crown. He was, simply stated, a real company guy. Andros, therefore, was completely aware of the problem that the crown had in New England and viewed a potential opportunity for himself should he bring the often wayward colony into line. The New England colonies were also aware that Andros was a potential threat and bristled at his promises to send assistance to Connecticut. Andros and a handful of men did actually make a move on this and set off with a few men to Saybrook, which is located just south of Hartford and north of the tip of Montauk in Long Island. The leaders in Connecticut were worried that Andros might try and assist matters and sent Captain Thomas Poole and a handful of men to let Andros know that all is well. Andros and his men landed on July 8th and were promptly met by Bull. Bull said thank you but no thank you and told Andros that assistance was not needed. As Bull was better armed and Andros knew a lost cause when he saw it, he would hop right back onto his boat and head back home. This is not going to be the last time that Andros is going to be involved in bringing New England to heel. However, our story on this podcast is still a few weeks away from that. However, this seemingly minor event is something that I encourage you to tuck away in the back of your mind. It is going to come up again in the future. In the winter of 1676, therefore, when Andros got word that not only was Philip inside his colony, but there were 2,100 men ready to fight, he would have had a very real fear that New York was about to be pulled into the war. Andros had absolutely no interest in allowing Philip to walk around his colony with an army unmolested. With that being said, however, Andros did have a few problems on his hands. First, even though he had an enemy force in his territory, Andros was super anxious about going to war with Philip. As we discussed in our episodes on New York, the population of the colony was still fairly small in the 1670s. Andros didn't really have the manpower to form a formidable fighting force. Plus, wars were expensive, destroyed infrastructure, and generally threatened the stability of a colony. None of this was really sounding like a fun day for Edmund Andros. Andros, however, not to be deterred, settled on another option. Instead of doing the fighting, he could simply find somebody who would do the dirty work for him. In this mode, Andros decided to use the Mohawk tribe. The Mohawks were no friends to the Wampanoag and certainly were not going to be at risk of joining the fight for Philip. The Mohawks saw this as an advantage to attack a long-standing enemy. 
Beyond that, Andros had agreed to arm the Mohawks for the attack. For the Mohawk tribe, this was a win-win situation. They got new weapons, and they got to attack one of their enemies. The attack itself came as an ambush, and a particularly brutal one at that. Occurring in late February of 1676, the attack left hundreds dead. The estimates say that Philip personally had about 500 men with him, and that only 40 were left following the ambush. Other reports have the numbers larger, with a large number of Philip's followers being scattered. While I suspect that these numbers might be a bit inflated, it does not change the fact that Philip had been dealt a devastating blow. Beyond the obvious fact that Philip had just lost a large number of his fighting force, the ambush also saw his supplies raided and destroyed. Ammunition, food, everything that they had was destroyed by the Mohawks. Based on what we looked at last week, this actually makes some sense in what we saw. If you recall, despite the English struggles in March, none of those losses came at the hand of Philip. Rather, those losses were all delivered by Canachet and the Narragansett. Philip played basically no part of the Indians' March campaign, as he could do little more than limp back to New England as a broken man. Andros was playing a very dangerous game here. Not interested in having his own men attack Philip, he found himself in the position where he was having to arm the Mohawk. Now, if you're asking why not just attack Philip himself, the most likely explanation is that Andros did not want to risk bringing New York into the war. Should he attack with his Englishmen, it is going to be a very difficult thing for it not to be seen as an immediate declaration of war against Philip, hence dragging New York into a war that Andros did not want. The Mohawks and the Algonquian, which the Wampanoag were a part of, had been longtime rivals. The Mohawks hated the Wampanoag's guts and they were more than happy to deliver a fatal blow against their longtime rival. The dangerous part for Andros is one of those lessons of all history that just keeps on giving. Whenever you supply weapons to a third party, you need to make very sure that those weapons aren't going to be used later on you. In this case, it will all work out for Andros. However, it was a risk that he took nonetheless. Following the February attack on Philip, he would never personally recover. The Mohawk had, more than the colonists ever did, broken the back of his army. Throughout the remainder of 1676, Philip is going to remain a relatively minor player, whose main role becomes doing whatever he can to hold together his increasingly weak alliances. The victories by the Narragansett in March probably did help him keep everything together, as there was still a chance that the war was not completely lost. However, following the events of April and May and the death of Kenneshet, victory now seemed out of reach. With Philip's personal army in shambles because of the surprise attack, he was fatally weakened to the point that he could no longer maintain the series of alliances, and the entire structure quickly fell apart. This is all going to accumulate with the death of Philip in August of 1676. However, the war did not simply end because Philip had now died. Benjamin Church would lead a few more missions where he sought out and successfully captured many of the leaders of the war who remained alive. And by the end of the summer of 1676, the war in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island was over. For them, the rebuilding process could finally begin after a brutal war. For these colonies, there had been far more destruction and death than anybody could have ever predicted. The colonists had won the war, 
However, doing that had come at a very steep price. Two major questions remained, however, as we head into the fall of 1676. The first question is what to do with all the captured Indians that the English now had in their custody. The second problem was to address the fact that, despite both Philip being dead and the defeat of the Narragansett, the war was not actually over. For Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island, the war was indeed over. However, up in Maine, hostilities remained and would continue to flare up until the peace agreement of 1678, which would officially close all theaters of King Philip's war. So, first, we are going to look at what happened to all the English captives before we turn back to bring King Philip's war to its official conclusion. To say that the colonists' treatment of the Indians following the war was poor is an understatement. The colonists in New England never really seemed to get that introspective moment when they realized that many of the root causes of the war was their treatment of the Native Americans. And while we shouldn't look at Philip as being blameless in this situation, as he certainly wasn't, it is colonial policy and unchecked expansion since 1621 that had done so much to set up the conditions of this war. Following the war, the English aren't going to do any better. In Plymouth, the orders coming down in 1676 was one of exile. If the colonists were holding members of an enemy tribe, they were to be immediately exiled from the colony. While forced dislocation is rough, it is still far better of a fate than what Massachusetts had in mind. In Massachusetts, the decision was made towards the end of 1676 that there were two potential outcomes for the Indians in the colony. If an Indian had been responsible for the death of a colonist, then their penalty was affixed at death. For everybody else, they would be sold into slavery. We had discussed previously that there were several Indians that had remained allied with the English. In fact, it was John Alderman, a praying Indian, who had personally killed Philip. Their reward for an alliance with the winning side was a forced relocation to specialized towns. Many of them, however, simply would get lumped in with everybody else and they found themselves being sold off into bondage. Even outside of Massachusetts itself, many of these friendly tribes who had fought with the English still saw their lands reduced and restrictions put upon them. Simply put, if you were an Indian and you fought on the winning side, the best you could realistically hope for was a reduction in your land. If you were on the losing side, slavery and death were your new reality. The Narragansett were in a bad place following the end of the war. The English ambush of the Narragansett had been devastating. So many of their people had died that the tribe would never fully recover. The English would seize nearly all of their lands and reduce them to a small holding in Rhode Island. Finally, for the Wampanoag, the tribe that had been so instrumental in the early years of Plymouth, and the tribe that had been at the center of this war, saw their lands also substantially reduced. Those not killed or sold into slavery would be under constant surveillance, and over the next century would largely begin to simply assimilate into the English culture in Rhode Island. Though little would ever be done to restore their lands, back in London there was more than a little bit of shock at the incredibly harsh treatment that the colonists imposed on the Indians in New England. King Philip's War was already unpopular in London. The harsh settlements following the war and the poor treatment of the Indians did nothing to make the home islands feel better about New England's place in the empire something that we are going to be discussing in a lot more depth here, 
just a few weeks from now. And while the war was over in many of the colonies in the South, the final thing that we are going to look at this week is that last group of Indians up in Maine who would maintain hostilities until 1678, when the final peace was agreed upon, officially ending the war. As we have discussed before, King Philip's War was diffuse in nature. Just because we refer to it as King Philip's War, and he is certainly the most well-known figure, his system of alliances was just never that strong. More realistically, what occurred was a general Indian uprising in the region, with Philip at the middle of a loose confederation. This means, however, that when the war in the South ended following Philip's death, not everybody just went home and quit fighting. It did, for the tribes in the southern part of New England, make sense to bail out on the war during the early summer months of 1676. None of them had the forces necessary to really fight anymore, and the condition on the ground was rapidly deteriorating. However, up in Maine, that really was not the case. Maine at this point was far more sparsely populated than what we think of throughout the rest of New England, and it had generally been spared the worst of King Philip's war. However, to say that it had been spared the worst of the war is not to say that the war did not reach up there. The first engagements in Maine followed just a few months following the events at Swansea. Just as really was the case for the rest of New England, the most common type of attack was a quick ambush-style hit-and-run. The fighting in Maine was largely carried out by the Abenaki tribe, who lived up in the region. Again, much as we see elsewhere, they would often attack a house or two, kill a few English, cause general havoc, and then burn the houses and the crops before retreating back into the safety of the forest. The most notable battle to occur in Maine took place at the small trading post known as Erosic. Erosic was described as being armed, though not a traditional fort. Either way, it was seen as something of a safe haven for the English in the region. The Abenaki tribe, however, had other ideas. The English, wanting to make sure that the coast was clear, obviously employed the use of sentries, just to keep a lookout. The problem, however, is that the guy the colonists picked on the morning of August 14th, 1676, did a really bad job at this. The Abenaki found the sentry on his regular patrol. Rather than ambushing and killing him, as would fit the narrative of the war, the Abenaki instead followed him. They followed him around on his patrol, and then they literally walked into the trading post behind the apparently oblivious sentry. Evidence suggests that nobody locked or even closed the door behind the sentry, as the Abenaki warriors strolled right into the trading post. I don't care how great your fortification is, if you forget to lock the front door and the enemy just walks right on in, you are probably not going to have a very good day. The colonists inside, indeed, had a very bad day. Once inside the post, the Abenaki attacked, killing several of the colonists inside. While numerous men would escape out windows, it was clearly a bad look for the colonists, who had just lost the closest thing that they had to a fort. The Abenaki were never going to be able to hold the trading post, nor did they make any attempt to. Within a few months, the English were back in control of the post, though it was unquestionably a humiliating loss. While the war in Maine would never really reach the same fever pitch that it did down in the south, it would also drag on for significantly longer. As the war did drag on in the north, Edmund Andros again saw the situation to his benefit. He observed that the war was still going on in Maine, 
and decided that he would try to salvage an eventual partnership by offering asylum to the Indians fighting up there. Andros likely viewed the Abenaki as being a potentially powerful ally once the war ended, and saw an opportunity to grab a trading advantage over New England. Seeing how New England had begun to deal with the Indians that they had captured, whether hostile or not, many tribes took Andros' deal and made their way to New York, a move that did little to endear him to the Massachusetts officials. The residents of Maine, who were nominally under the control of the greater Massachusetts Bay Colony, were feeling very much abandoned by that same colony. Therefore, when New York made them an offer to immigrate to New York itself, the offer must have seemed pretty tempting. The Bay Colony, however, was quick to rebuff the offer and refused to allow the Maine colonists to go. One would assume that based on their recent history, Andros knows that this was always going to be the case. However, Andros was playing a long game here. He was interested in growing the Duke of York's holdings, while at the same time, though to a lesser extent, of returning New England to a position where they would be more subservient to the crown. While offering passage to the displaced residents of Maine might seem innocent enough, Andros was likely trying to drive a wedge between the New England colonies in the hopes that they should separate off to the New York colony. With the war dragging on and New England now dealing with the practical ramifications of that war, a decision was made to have a conference in Albany in April of 1677. The point of this conference was primarily to bring the English into a peaceful coexistence with the Iroquois nation. An uneasy peace was reached, with Andros acting in the position of the successful mediator. With questions of Indian rights now being answered in the South by June of 1677, Andros decided that he wanted to help bring an end to the entire conflict. His price for this, however, was going to be steep. Specifically, he wanted to ensure that Maine and Massachusetts were no longer a single entity. Luckily for Andros, the Abenaki tribe was sick of fighting and likely realized that the long-term outcome would not favor them. They wanted a way out and Andros was the one who was going to provide that escape. Andros was able to craft an agreement which would bring an immediate into the war in Maine. A fort was constructed in Maine, now known as Fort Charles, and the negotiations took place. What resulted from this was a peace that was far more lenient than the Bay Company would have liked. Those remaining Indians being held by the colonists were to be released. English property rights were to be respected and an agreement was reached where the English would make payments in corn for the settlers on the Indian land. The Abenaki, who really couldn't stand the New Englanders, refused to surrender to Massachusetts and rather officially would be allowed to surrender to Andros himself. Massachusetts was appalled by these conditions and refused to sign the treaty. The Bay Colony instead decided that they were going to strike out and attempt a final decisive battle. Launched on June 28, 1678, the battle to defeat the Abenaki was nothing but a disaster for the colonists. The colonial forces were dealt a bad loss in a war that had been filled with bad losses. With the loss on June 28, Massachusetts finally relented and signed the treaty. The Treaty of Casco was signed and officially brought an end to King Philip's War. Well, Andros would fail in his goal of cleaving Maine away, Maine would remain under the nominal control of Massachusetts for the future, Andros would eventually have his day when the Dominion of New England forms. However, for now, Andros has done a lot to make himself deeply unpopular in New England, something that is going to be a pretty big deal a little ways down the road. The legacy of King Philip's War in New England simply cannot be overstated. 
However, unlike we did with Bacon's Rebellion, I'm not going to spend this episode talking about the legacy of the war. This isn't because the legacy isn't important or isn't going to matter moving forward. Rather, the exact opposite is the truth. While Bacon's Rebellion would have a dramatic effect on Virginia and would lead to that important realignment of alliances, as the minor planters and farmers would end up ultimately strengthening their relationship with the great landlords, King Philip's War is a bit different. King Philip's War would completely upend the relationship between New England and the mother country. From Whitehall, there was nothing about the war that was going to make Charles II feel good. The colonies, already dangerously independent, just executed a war where not only did they not ask for assistance from the crown, but actively rejected it when Edmund Andros offered. Charles II, needing to get control over his wayward colonies, was going to take dramatic action and eliminate the charters throughout New England, forming the Dominion of New England. The freedoms and liberties that the New England colonies had largely enjoyed from the beginning of their existence was going to be gone. At the head of this new combined colony was the already unpopular Edmund Andros. Andros, over the course of the Dominion of New England's history, would move from an unpopular figure to one of the greatest villains in colonial American history. In the more immediate sense, the war had been absolutely devastating to everybody involved. We talked about the fate of the Indians, including those who had allied with the English. The numbers of dead in New England was counted in the thousands. And while I cannot find any solid sources on Indian deaths, one would assume that it was substantial and almost certainly higher than colonial losses. English towns from Rhode Island and Connecticut up through Maine had been burned. Cattle were dead, farms destroyed and looted. Rebuilding would take years for the colonists. The Indians in the region were removed from their traditional lands, sold into slavery, and often flat-out killed. The old structure of power between the groups in New England would never become what it was before the war. That is where I'm going to leave things for right now. We have a great deal more that we are going to talk about regarding the effects of King Philip's War. However, as I said a moment ago, that is going to be something that is going to take me several episodes to fully explain. The plan, therefore, moving forward is that we are going to spend the next few episodes on a quick trip to the south. It is time to bring Pennsylvania into our story, and we are going to spend some time introducing the new Quaker colony. That is going to include spending a whole lot of time with William Penn himself. After that, we are going to return to New England and pick our story up as we watch the English reaction to King Philip's War. This will lead us into the Dominion of New England and everything that comes along with it. So with that, I will see you back here in two weeks' time as we turn our attention to bringing Pennsylvania into the great game. I hope that you all have a good two weeks, that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we introduce the Pennsylvania Colony. Colony.